called Familiar Psalms for Forgetful People. We thank all the teachers and parents and volunteers and teenagers and children that helped make Vacation Bible School this past week a wonderful time. Uh, Just so grateful for God's mercy. Psalm 73 This is a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as, as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out as through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will thus speak, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, and you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you'll receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is a strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The Bible says of itself that the grass withers, the flower fades, that the word of our God it stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you and ask that you would add your blessing to the reading and preaching of your word. We make this prayer today, not just as as something we do each week, but we need your help. We need your grace. We need the work that only you can do, Holy Spirit, to open our hearts and eyes to see wonderful things from your word. So we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Why bother? I mean, seriously, why bother? I bet that's a question that you have asked, maybe not out loud, 
But internally, at least, when life seems like a rat race in a cynical and skeptical world, when we've gotten burned out and fed up and overwhelmed with work and family and neighbors and the world and ourselves and sickness and maybe even the church, it's tempting to think, what's the point? Is God really in control? Does he know what he's doing? Is following Jesus Christ actually worth it? And if you've asked those questions before or wrestled with questions like those before, you may be shocked to hear that you're not the first and you won't be the last. These are not questions and dilemmas that have surfaced in the last 20 years. In fact, Asaph asked some of these same questions in Psalm 73, 3,000 years ago. He was a prominent leader in the church. He was the choir director for all of Jerusalem. And Asaph and myself and Christians in every age have dealt with questions like these, just like you have. And one of the things that makes Psalm 73 so appealing, so powerful, is its open honesty It is real, it's raw, and it's authentic. And for those who are tempted to think that the Bible is just a list of rules that we must obey or a compilation of hero stories that should be emulated, Psalm 73 comes along and crushes those stereotypes. It's one more example of how God's Word powerfully speaks into our lives, into our context, into our story. And that there's room... For struggle and questions, and there's room for repentance and renewal because our standing before God and our security for life now and into the future is based on God's covenant love displayed in Jesus Christ. And so Psalm 73 is a story, it's a, it's a journey, it's Asaph's autobiographical account of what it was like, what happened, And what it's like now. And we're going to think about it together in three ways. Conflict, turning point, and resolution. So in verses 1 through 16, we see a conflict. But Asaph begins in verse 1 with a profession of faith. It's a declaration, a statement that he had practically worked through. It's tried, it's true, it's, it's tested. He's essentially saying, before you read any further in Psalm 73, make no mistake, here is where I stand. This is where I plant my flag. Surely God is good to Israel, to all those who are pure in heart. And as we begin our discussion this morning, can you begin and continue and end with that profession, God is good It's a basic reality of his character. He's good. God is worth it. And from that profession, then he describes some of his struggle, some of his conflict. He he describes the doubts that he faced. He almost slipped. He almost fell into full-blown despair. What were some of the things that got him off track? If you have your Bible, look with me at these verses or or look along in your bulletin. Look with me in verse 3. 
He envied the arrogant, and he saw the prosperity of the wicked. His conflict was simple. If God is so good, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the arrogant and the proud always seem to get ahead? The cheaters and liars and shysters of the world are winning. And I'm going to be honest, he says, I want what they have. He goes on in verse 4. The wicked have no pain until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They don't have any problems until they die. Until they're, and then their bodies are fat and sleek. That's actually a compliment. Um, one of my seminary professors was a missionary in Uganda, and uh, his wife was pregnant, uh, having a healthy pregnancy, and one of the men in his church came up to him and said, your wife is very fat. And uh, he meant, your, what'd you say? Yeah, his, my, he meant your wife is healthy. She looks great. She's thriving. And that's the idea here. They're fat and sleek. The wicked are full and satisfied, not hungry, not hurting. They're doing great. Verse five, they don't face the same struggles that we face. They're not stricken like the rest of us. Verses six through eight, they're proud, they're violent, they're foolish. The wicked bully their way through life. They bulldoze anyone and everyone who gets in their way. Their lives are shaped by malice. They threaten oppression. You better give me what, you, what I want or I will punish you. Verse 8, they set their mouths against God. God, they're mocking you. They say, how can God know? And even though they're foolish, they're still rich and successful. They're always at ease. Verse 12, they increase in riches. This is a conflict that Asaph honestly describes for us. And his summary is basically this. God, they're breaking your law, but their lives are great. I'm following you, and everything seems to be falling apart. Are you seeing this, God? I thought you had a plan and a purpose for my life. What about your promises? I try to honor you by doing the right thing at work, at school, in my life. They cut corners, they cheat, they steal. Guess who gets the promotion? Guess who gets the sale? Guess who gets the grade? God, living for you in this world makes me feel like a laughingstock. Psalm 73 highlights a dynamic tension in the Christian life. On the one hand, there are are real and normal and everyday Christians who have doubts and questions and issues and struggles. Make no mistake that being a Christian doesn't mean that you have to wear a fake smile all the time and pretend that everything is fine. We all walk through and wrestle with struggles and doubts. Don't ignore them. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller talks about this in the, in the introduction. He says, a faith without doubt is like a body without antibodies. Now, what's so dangerous for people that are going through chemotherapy, people who are immunosuppressed, is, is that their immune system isn't working properly. They can get sick. The flu, a cold can make them, it, it put them in the ICU. And so what 
when we have questions and doubts and struggles, we need to lean into them and bring them to the Lord. So, yes, people can have doubts and struggles. Also, at the same time, we're called to continue in faith and dependence upon God to keep moving forward, to keep believing, to keep asking the Lord and others for help and strength. So, as we think about these first 16 verses of Psalm 73, my question is this. What are the, the conflicts and the issues and the struggles that you've had? Maybe, maybe you're, you're wrestling through them right now. Asaph models for us a path forward. He had real conflict, but we also see that there's a turning point. That's the second thing I want us to look at. There's a turning point. We can feel the tension and the drama build. It's like a pressure cooker. We can see the difficulty and the frustration in Asaph's experience. But then he has an epiphany. He has a breakthrough. What helped him bridge the gap between doubting God and delighting in God? There are two things I want to highlight. First, where? You know the the motto of real estate, location, location, location. Some may think that the last place to bring your doubts and your questions and your struggles would be church. But notice where Asaph has his turning point, his epiphany, his breakthrough. I sought to understand this, verse 16, it was wearisome to me until what? Until I went into the sanctuary of God, until he went to church. That was where he began to unfold and unravel the the challenges that he faced. Until I went to the sanctuary, until he worshipped the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Remember last week we talked about how, how worship helps restore our spiritual sanity. And there is something irreplaceable. There's something special and formative and restorative about worshiping God with the people of God. Worship is a special time where the Spirit of God uses the the reading of the Word and the singing of the Word and the praying of the Word and the preaching of the Word to, to transform us. Have you ever been at church and the pastor or someone says something and you think to yourself, how did he know that about me? Well, I've been reading your text messages. No, it's the Spirit of God bringing encouragement and bringing conviction upon us. Where did the turning point take place? It took place in the sanctuary. It took place in worship. And again, we talked about this some last week. When you're struggling, when you've got questions, when you have shame, you want to stay away. When this is the place where you need to be. Where? In the sanctuary. What? What is it that, that Asaph understood? What helped change his perspective? Look at verse 17. He was confronted with a sobering reality. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And this must have hit him like a ton of bricks. He was reminded that we all have souls that will never die. 
and that this world is not all that there is, Asaph had a brush with eternity. He had a brush with the joy and the offense of the Christian message. 1 John 5, 12 says it like this, He who has a son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. John 3, 36, Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I think it was John Piper who said something like this. We live on the edge of eternity and we're called to to remind others that they do as well. What was it that was the turning point in Asaph's life? He discerned their end. Verses 18 through 20 talk a little bit more about what he understood. In reality, the wicked, their lives are on slippery places, are like slippery places. They're on thin ice. Their lives are like a dream. They will be destroyed. God's not in heaven wringing his hands. I wonder what's going to happen. No. Look at verse 20. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. I had a good conversation with Kurt about this verse this week. You know when you have a bad dream, and, and when you're dreaming, it's so scary and it's so stressful, and then you wake up, oh, that was just a dream. That's what the wicked will be like to God. They don't have anywhere to stand. And that really is the biggest problem. They won't have anyone to stand for them in the judgment. They'll have no advocate, no spokesman, no intercessor, no covering, no protection. There's only one name under heaven whereby men must be saved. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So our hope is in his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection. And dear ones, when we die, the size of our bank accounts our social standing, our personal or professional achievements, our charity, work, none of that will ultimately matter. On that day, all that matters is Jesus Christ. His life for our life, his death in our place. I've used this illustration before. It's an oldie but a goodie. Uh, It's about a small village in an ancient far eastern city where there was a severe drought and the leaders put in a strict water ration in place under the punishment of a severe beating and within days of beginning this ration there was uh, chatter in the whole town everyone was talking someone had been caught stealing water there were witnesses and an elderly woman was brought before the judge The twist is that the woman was the judge's own mother. So he tried the case, and he heard the witnesses. It was a cut-and-dried case. He He had to pass judgment. The law was clear. He declared the verdict guilty. And everyone knew that the punishment would probably kill the old woman. And after he pronounced the judgment, he came down from his bench as a judge and he walked down to his mother and they hugged and they wept together 
And as the jailer was ready to give the punishment that she deserved, he went from hugging her to turning her around and putting his, his body over hers. And he said, beat her severely. You see the image? Jesus takes the punishment and the penalty for us, even though he hadn't done anything wrong. This is what gave Asaph hope. Not only he saw the end of the wicked, but he also saw that he can stand solely on the promises and protection and security of God who would ultimately provide a Messiah, Jesus. That's a turning point. Have you experienced that turning point in your life? Are you able to admit admit that this is not all there is? That one day we will stand before God? Are you able to admit that we all live on the edge of eternity? And if you are, let that drive you into the arms of Jesus Christ. And let it wean you from envy of this world. And let it move you to share the message of Jesus with friends and family and neighbors who need it so desperately. That was a turning point. There was conflict, a turning point, and there's also resolution in Psalm 73. And we see this resolution in several different ways. Look at me in verses 21 and 22. What do we see after Asaph comes to his senses? He says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. He was bitter, but now he humbles himself before God and others, and he says, I was wrong. I'm sorry. It is so easy for us to hang on to bitterness, to hang on to resentment, to hold on to sin, to keep it in our back pockets and say, yeah, I'll worship God, but I just need this every now and then. Have you brought your sins, your bitterness, your pride, your envy, your arrogance, your lust, your self-righteousness to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance for the first time or the thousandth time? Remember the first of Luther's 95 theses and he nailed on the door of the church in Wittenberg. He said, when our Lord Jesus, our Lord and Master Christ, Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be ones of repentance. Repentance, brothers and sisters, is a key part of the resolution of Psalm 73. There's also refreshing. A big part of the 180 degree turnaround in this passage is Asaph's fresh sense and perspective of how good God really is. He planted his flag here in verse 1. He shared his struggles. He talked about his breakthrough. And now he's refreshed in the presence and promise and inheritance and strength of God. And refreshing is such a great word. We long for refreshing. After a workout, after working in the yard, a cold glass of water, a dip in the pool, refreshing is exactly what we're looking for, and it's what God gives us. Look at verse 23. Asaph 
Rejoice, nevertheless, God, even though I sinned, even though I, I questioned you in a sinful way, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. Notice Asaph doesn't say, I know you're out there somewhere, God. No, he says, I'm continually with you and you hold me by my right hand. Verse 24, you guide me, you lead me, you counsel me, and afterwards you receive me into glory. He knew that God shaped and shepherded and guided and guarded him, that God was with him and for him. And then in verses 25 through 27, he delights and depends on God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. I bet that some of you read that and you think, well, that's great for someone else. That'll never really be my story. God worked and taught in Asaph's life. God can work and teach you as well. Even through the storm, even through the unthinkable. You know this quote from Corey Tim Boom, you may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And Psalm 73 tells us, it teaches us, brothers and sisters, that God is our strength and God is our portion. We're not as strong as we think we are. We can't do it on our own. We were made to flourish and thrive while living in utter dependence upon God. And that is so refreshing. It's so refreshing to know and believe that the world does not revolve around us. That we don't have to hold it all together. That everything doesn't rest in our sho- on our shoulders. We're not God. But we're called to trust in God as our strength. And God is our portion. There are so many things that we think that we need. Escape, comfort, experiences, control, power, reputation. What's the reality? God is our portion. He is our inheritance. He's all that we need. It's, we sing it. All I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. There's refreshing that comes. We see it from Psalm 73. And there's also resolution. Asaph not only learned a personal lesson, he closes Psalm 73 with a commitment, a resolution. Look at me at verse 28. But for me, it's good to be near God. Now that's a true statement for all people, but Asaph is actually using his story, his experience, to illustrate, to demonstrate a larger truth. The first part of verse 28 is an invitation for us. When Asaph says, but for me it's good to be near God, we should think, you know what? For me it's good to be near God too. And he goes on, I have made the Lord God my refuge. I have committed, I have resolved by God's grace to take refuge and to find safety in God. He's my hiding place. He's my strong tower. He's my rock and my refuge and my redeemer. Why? Look at verse 28, the last part. That I may tell of your works. Notice it's not so I can live a comfortable, easy life. It's not so I'll never run into any problems. It's not so people will just leave me alone. You stay in your lane, I'll stay in my lane. No. 
It's that I may tell of your works. Brothers and sisters, there is a missional discipleship component to our growth and our experiences and even our mistakes and our repentance. We are ambassadors and witnesses for Jesus Christ. We are charged to encourage one another to train our children, to take the gospel message across the street and around the world. And Asaph is saying, I'm going to look for safety and security in God. I'm committed to that. Why? So I can tell others about the goodness of our God. Each one of you has a unique story. Some of the parts... Are easy to tell. Some are not so easy to tell. But have you ever thought that God has uniquely equipped you to help people who have been through similar things? He's helped you to share so that others can hear and know I'm not alone. There's someone else. You remember 2 Corinthians chapter 1? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's part of the resolution. Conflict, turning point, resolution. Why bother? There's so much that's wrong with this world, so much pain, so much wreckage that we've all faced. Why bother? The key is seeing ourselves and everyone else in the light of eternity and the wonderful grace of Jesus Christ for our sins. It is worth it because God sent his one and only son to live for us, to die for us, to rise again for our justification that we can be with him forever. So, I want you to bring your questions and your doubts and your spiritual funk into the radiant light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And when we stand in the spotlight of God's holiness and power and majesty and eternal, steadfast, everlasting love, when we live in the light of God's love and his glory, all this other stuff just fades away. I was, uh, several years ago, I was worked for RUF, the College Ministry of the PCA, and I was the director of our summer conference, which is a big thing we do down at the beach every, every year. And uh, I, I had a little break, and so me and some friends went to play golf. And we got a phone call while we were on the golf course that one of the children of a campus minister was, was missing. And uh, everyone's looking for this young child, and... Uh, we say to ourselves, okay, well, you know, nothing we can really do about it, so we'll, we'll finish our round. And my friend John Stone uh, walked up to his ball, and he was standing over it, you know, to, to hit it. And he says, what are we doing? Let's go. We jumped in the, in the golf carts, and we went to the parking lot, and we drove back to camp to help find 
that little boy who had crawled under a bunk bed and fallen asleep. What are we doing? I'll never forget his face. What are we doing? Golf doesn't matter. There's a child that's missing and needs our help. So when we have our questions and our doubts and our struggles, what about this? What about that? Oh, wait. Our present suffering cannot be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Why is this happening to me. This is not fair, God. Oh, wait. We're loved and accepted by the God of the universe, adopted into his family. This isn't the way I planned it, Lord. Wait. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Why bother? Because it's worth it. Kennedy Smart was one of the founders of our denomination, and there's a, a video of him talking about his ministry, talking about the different places that he, he worked, and uh, this is just a man filled with joy. And uh, the interviewer at near the end just said, uh, has it been worth it? And he looked at him, and he smiled this real big smile, said, oh, it'll all be worth it when we see Jesus. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for your word. And we thank you that even in your word, leaders in your church had struggles, had doubts, had fears. And thank you also for the gift of perspective and renewal and repentance and refreshing and give us, give us faith to bring our struggles to you, God. And I pray this morning that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, doesn't know the, the life that's found in Jesus Christ, would you open their hearts and give them the courage to raise the white flag of surrender and to trust in Jesus, even through the struggles. And help us who have followed you for many years to do the same day by day, living lives of repentance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.